I think for most of us, we've probably heard this simple saying of, they're just seeking their 15 minutes of fame. Anybody ever heard that? And maybe if we're just going to be honest, there's been moments even in our lives where we've sought our 15 minutes of fame. I remember uh, for myself trying to grow up and uh, I had this idea that I was going to be a professional basketball player. Like I was convinced of it. I thought I was going to be the next Kobe Bryant or like Michael Jordan. I was like, I've, I've got what it takes. Um, I quickly discovered that I was missing something called height and really good skills to fulfill that dream. Um, but it, it didn't stop me from dreaming the dream, right? From seeking the 15 minutes of fame. I watched these guys, uh, you know, play ball. And, and I, I watched, I, I saw a little bit of Jordan, but like I saw a lot of Kobe. And Kobe for me was the young kid, right? And he was like the guy who I was like, man, I just, I want, I want to be able to do that. He had the shoe endorsement deals. He had the commercials. He had the, everybody knew who he was. It was Kobe Bryant. But here's what I didn't understand. I didn't understand that I wasn't built like Kobe. You see, for me, I had the dream of getting the 15 minutes of fame. I had the dream of having the endorsements. I had the dream of little kids running around with my little jersey, right? Like, I wanted to be famous. I did not, though, have the dedication to eat the right things. I did not have the dedication to be in the gym at all hours. I didn't have the dedication to do the drills always, the workouts, the trainings, or even just be faithful to the work I was supposed to be doing. I just wanted the 15 minutes of fame. I wanted the moments of fame without the work, without the struggles, without the trials, the pain, the hardships, and the setbacks. And I think if you really boil it down to, I think this is a similar issue that some of the early believers in the church that we're going to talk about today had too. They weren't willing to do the work They weren't willing to be faithful to what God has called them to. They weren't willing to stay the course. See, this church in Smyrna, uh, it's a pretty well-known church. It would have rivaled the the city of Ephesus even. It it was home to roughly about 100,000 people or so. And this is a picture of it. And so you can see these arches and and you can see like this is a place where people would have been flooding into. This this church in Smyrna was was a well-known place. It had some famous temples to Zeus and it was a massive marketplace and commerce center. People were coming and going. People were there all the time. It was a well-known place. It was also very, very beautiful. A nickname for the city was actually the the crown of Asia. So you can imagine with a nickname of a crown of Asia, this place was spectacular. And Jesus starts his letter, and John pens it for him. Jesus starts his letter to this church in a very specific way. And this is what it says in, in Revelation 2 verse 8. This is how he starts. So Jesus instructs him, write this letter to the angel of the church in Smyrna. 
It's the message from the one who is the first and the last, who was dead but is now alive. What's intriguing as we continue to dig into these churches and these letters, we're going to start to see the reality that Jesus actually continues to reflect back on that first vision that John had. John had the vision in Revelation 1 of Jesus. And we talked about like the moment where Jesus is standing before John and John falls face first before him in worship. He can't believe his eyes. It's Jesus. And Jesus uses this specific title here. That I am the first and the last. It's a very divine, a holy title. He's referencing and reminding John in this church of the title that belongs to him, Yahweh. I am who I am, God, the holiest of holies. He's very specific in what he says. It's a reminder that this church serves a risen Lord, the one who conquered death itself. And what's fascinating to me is that in this just one verse, in this one verse, Jesus sets up and gives context to everything that these people are experiencing in their life. I'm the first and the last. He knows everything. He, he is before and he is after all that you are seeing right now. I am the one who conquered death. He gives context for the life that they live. And he continues on. He continues on, verses 9 and 10. And he says this, I know about your suffering and your poverty. Right off the bat, he identifies himself with the title, I am the first and the last. And then he says, I know about the poverty you are suffering in right now. But you are rich. You are rich. I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. They say they are Jews, but they are not because their synagogue belongs to Satan. Woo! Those are some harsh words, y'all. But don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. The devil will throw some of you into prison to test you. You will suffer for 10 days. But if you remain faithful, even when facing death... I will give you the crown of life. Y'all, in those three verses right there, that is some heavy, heavy stuff. Heavy stuff. Of, he's talking about real struggles, struggles here. He's talking about suffering and pain and poverty. And let's just start there. We're going to start to dissect this a little bit. He goes in, he talks about the suffering and the poverty that these people are facing. And here's something that we have to understand. At the very core, we have to understand that the Christians of Smyrna, they knew poverty because they were robbed and fired from their jobs out of persecution for the gospel. This is a well-known city. Remember that. This was a city that was full of commerce and trade. This is not necessarily a poor City. But the Christians here are suffering poverty. Why? All for the gospel. And what's intriguing is that 
as you started, if you were to dig in a little bit more and start to just read into this a little bit more, we would understand that the early Christians here, they accepted the plundering of their goods. They accepted that they would go through suffering and that they would lose their possessions because their richness is in heaven. At the bottom line of it all, here's what the reality was in the church in Smyrna. The early church in Smyrna valued faithfulness, valued faithfulness over feelings, fortune, and fame. They valued faithfulness over feelings, future, and fortune, and fame. There's a reality check that Jesus starts off with. He talks about the suffering and the poverty, but he immediately after that mentions that you are rich. You are rich. He recognizes what's happening. He recognizes the brokenness, and he speaks to it because he knows it. Let's not forget that this is the same Jesus who walked on this earth. The same Jesus who was born into a poor family. The same Jesus who grew up with with not all the, the luxuries necessarily. This is the same Jesus who understood poverty. And what's intriguing to me is that Jesus in the present moment, he doesn't take away the pain, but he lets them as well as himself experience it. Jesus walks with them in it. Why? Because he himself understood it. He himself experienced it. He doesn't overlook their afflictions. He he knows them personally because he walked in them. And here's what I absolutely love. If you were to go back um, maybe one or two, I don't know if, if we can, but I have my Bible, so that's okay. He literally says, though, I know about your suffering. I know. He straight up says, I know. I know. He's walked in this. In the midst of this kind of reflection, it's easy to think that God has forgotten about them. That they're down there. He's up in heaven looking down. God has forgotten about us. But he starts off and he says, I know. Because he truly knows. He's been in it. He's walking in it. And when you dig into the church in Smyrna, you start to understand that the Christians in Smyrna are facing something very specific and very dangerous. The Christians in Smyrna were facing an imperial cult. An imperial cult that developed into a nationalist cult-like worship of the empire. This church was facing a decision. The Christians were facing a decision. It was very simple. You must choose. You either worship the empire, or basically you you lose it all and you're persecuted because you choose to worship Jesus. If you want to survive and thrive in Smyrna, you have to fit into this cult. A cult that worshiped the emperor and the empire above everything else. And here's what's interesting is in this text, you you see that there are people that are opposing the Christians and they even call themselves Jews. 
But they're not true Jews. They're false Jews. And here's why. Because these false Jews, they, they hold the title of, I'm, I'm a Jew. But in reality, they don't worship Jesus. They don't worship God. They're worshiping the empire. They're selling out. They're seeking to just coast by. And these false Jews, these false Jews no longer welcomed the Christians. We started to see this tear almost, this tension that they're living in. And in order to survive, the Christians had to choose to either bow to the empire and the emperor or endure the hardships and the pain that would come of them. As I was studying this church, what, what was fascinating to me was this. In, in Western Christianity, as we read the book of Revelation, a lot of times we believe or we would get this sense and feeling that Western churches are the church in Smyrna. We'd get this feeling like, oh man, like, okay, you know, Jesus is talking about you're going to be persecuted and you're going to suffer for this and you're going to do that. Like, we'd get this sense that, oh, we're the church in Smyrna. But I don't know if we are. I don't know if we are. During this, these past few months, if I'm being honest, I've, I've watched Facebook and um, some of these other, you know, social medias. And if I'm just going to be flat out honest with you, I don't know why I'm on Facebook still. <laughs> like, wow, I don't know why I have Facebook and here's why. I think we have seen, in some ways, I've seen some close friends of mine even have these, these moments where they say, you know, we're being persecuted for what we believe. And I, I, don't, I don't know, because if, if I look at the church in Smyrna, here's, here's where their poverty and persecution came from. They chose to sacrifice something in order to devote themselves to Jesus. They chose to reject the cult of the empire, knowing that there's a price for them to pay. They will be rejected. They will be harmed. They will be persecuted. I don't know if necessarily we are even close to what they are facing in Smyrna, if I'm just being honest. They were choosing to be poor. This is a wealthy town full of business and commerce and marketplaces, but yet Christians are choosing literally to give up everything. Fortune, fame, good feelings, coziness, comfortableness. They're giving it all up for the gospel's sake. They're choosing to not bow to an empire, and they're choosing to be persecuted for the sake of Jesus. And you have to understand that there's this, there is this overwhelming, crushing pressure of the Roman Empire to support them and worship Rome. It is, it is flowing so deep within this city. It was heavily involved in emperor worship, 
It was heavily involved in worshiping the empire above everything else. And if you didn't do it, there was a deep, harsh price to pay. But here's the reality is Jesus' followers were tested, but they endured. They endured. He talks about you may be tested. And oftentimes we, we hear those things and we're like, well, if this attack comes from the devil, then why didn't the early Christians just rebuke Satan and stop the attack? Well, maybe there's a purpose in God allowing certain things to happen in life. Maybe there's a purpose for God allowing certain sufferings and persecution. I think we learn something from it. God uses suffering to purify us. Have you ever had that relationship maybe? Remember when you were like that teenager and you just knew it was love? But the reality was it wasn't love. It was actually just this idol of relationship. And we had to be purified of that idol in our life. God uses suffering to purify us. God also uses suffering to make us like Jesus. Remember that Jesus was tempted and tried like man himself. And if we're going to be walking and loving like Jesus... We have to look like him. We have to be made like him. And what if God truly uses suffering and allows suffering so that we can be the best witness for Jesus? When you look back at this book, this book is full of people who lived and died for the gospel. In all the ages, in all of the, the times of Christians, from the very early Christians to even today, the blood of the martyrs has been the seed for the church. Statistically speaking, if you go back and read history books, the number one cause for growth in Christianity, growth in the church, is actually persecution and martyrdom. People dying for the cause. They valued faithfulness over feelings, fortune, and even fame. And I believe that's a valuable lesson for the church today. That's a valuable lesson for the church today. One of the very first early Christians who actually came from Smyrna, his name was Polycarp. And as I was studying for this message, as I was digging into it, I loved reading and learning about Polycarp. See, Polycarp was <clears throat> an early Christian, and one night he had this dream. His pillow caught on fire. I don't know about you, I've never had that dream. Personally, haven't had it. But what he understood was his pillow catching on fire was not just this random dream, but it meant something. And you see, Polycarp in those days was a well-known Christian. And here's the reality is that as he was living in these times, they had a choice to make. Every time you, you walked into a synagogue or a temple, you, you had to kind of pinch 
and burn a pinch of incense. And you get this certificate from the Roman government saying, like, well done, you've done it. He refused. He refused to compromise his beliefs of what he knew was true, of what he knew about Jesus, about what he knew about the kingdom of heaven, for a false god of the empire and the emperor. So he's taken. And they pleaded with him as they're leading him to this place where he'd be tied up to a stake. And they're pleading with him, all you have to do is take a pinch of incense and burn it. And just worship the empire. All you have to say is, is I worship it. And he refused. He refused. And he said that my God's been faithful to me and he has done no wrong to me all my life. So why would I do so to him now? Do we understand the value of faithfulness over fortune, fame, and feelings? Because he did, to the core. He understood it to the core. And I think our culture currently values the fortune, the fame, and the good feelings over faithfulness, if we're just going to be honest. Our culture is set up and would rather have 30 minutes of fame over 30 years of faithfulness. And as a church, as the church, we have to understand that we're not called to fortune. We're not called to fame. And if we're being honest, we're not even called to good feelings sometimes. We're called to be faithful. End of story, period. Faithfulness. We're called to hold tight to his promises. To hold tight to his presence. To hold tight to God's goodness in life. And as you continue to read in this, if you look back in, in verse 10, this is a very important part here. When Jesus speaks and he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of what you are about. Uh, no, okay. Oh yeah, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Continues on. The devil will throw some of you into prison to test you and you'll suffer for 10 days. But if you remain faithful, even when facing death itself, I will give you the crown of life. What's interesting is, can you just hold this one up on the screen for a minute, is there's different words for this right here, crown, in the Greek. There's different words. When we think of a crown, we automatically think of a crown that is full of like gold, diamonds, jewels. This very fancy type of crown. That's the kind of crown that a king would wear, or royalty would wear. But the other kind of crown, Stephanos is the Greek for it. That's the crown that's used here. It's a crown that's given as a trophy to a winning athlete. It's a crown that is given to the athlete that was faithful to the work, the athlete that has finished the race and has won. And essentially in this verse, Jesus is looking at the church and he is saying, 
You are my winners. And you deserve a trophy. He's celebrating them. If you endure this, I will give you a crown of life. But what's also interesting is this. That same crown that's given to athletes is the same crown that would be worn on a wedding day. It's beautiful when we start to understand that throughout this whole entire book, we see the imagery of a marriage, a husband and a wife pursuing each other, loving each other, being faithful to each other. Jesus is here talking about his bride, each wearing their crowns. What's intriguing is um, this church is special. Because this is the only church compared to the other six that has no evil spoken against it. No evil. Last week, we looked at the church where Jesus says, you have left your first love. Next week, we're looking at a church and Jesus says, I have this against you. This church, the church in Smyrna, go back and read those verses. There's never a moment where Jesus looks at this church and says, I have this against you. This is the only church in the book of Revelation in these letters that Jesus does not have beef with. He applauds it. You, you will suffer. But when you're faithful, you will receive the crown of life. There's that encouragement at the end. It's the only church also among the seven churches in Revelation that survives today. That is thriving today. It survived centuries of Roman and Muslim persecution. This church remained faithful. And I believe that when we choose to remain faithful and to be faithful, there is no greater reward than that crown. I believe that. The crown, the majesty, the beauty of it, the riches of this world has nothing to offer us in comparison to that crown. Like I said, when I was growing up, there were moments where I couldn't stop watching Kobe Bryant. I started to learn more and more about him. I wanted to know more. I wanted to know how did he get so good. It helps that you're born with natural talent. But the fact of the matter also was this, is Kobe was the first man in the gym, and he was the last man out. There's stories of his trainers getting a call at 3 a.m. from Kobe saying, hey, I'm in the gym working out. When can you be here? And they'd show up an hour later. And when they showed up as the trainer, Kobe was already drenched in sweat. He'd been there for two hours. Kobe didn't accept mediocre performance from himself and even his teammates. What was intriguing is when Kobe passed, there was a big uh, funeral for him. And some of his teammates shared stories of Kobe. 
pushing them, challenging them, questioning their motives. He was not going to accept losing. And he wanted to win and he'd go to great lengths to do it. He'd continue to play on a torn Achilles. He wanted greatness. And there was cost that he paid. I'm not saying, don't get me wrong, Kobe was a phenomenal basketball player, but there was cost that he paid. Time, energy, money, body wear and tear. There's moments in his life where he made questionable decisions. He paid a price. Because he wanted the fame. He wanted the glory. He wanted to be the best. What I learned about Kobe was this, is that he was faithful to his training. He was devoted to his training. He was devoted to being the best he could be. After Kobe retired, you started to see some of that even more so. He was devoted to becoming a better husband, a better father, a better advocate. I learned that Kobe Bryant was dedicated. And he was faithful to that dedication to being the best he could be. What's intriguing to me is this. As this book ends, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second death. When you are faithful, Jesus promises here to this church, when you are faithful to me, when you are faithful to me, when you endure the persecution and the suffering, you won't be harmed. You will be protected. That led me to ask a simple question of myself. How do I keep my heart faithful to him? How do I keep my heart pure for his mission each and every day of my life? So as we close today, as the band comes back up, I want to share about my journey a little bit with that. This is... This is a reality moment of, um, believe it or not, I have to ask myself of how do I address what I see as valuable in my life compared to what God says is valuable for me in my life. And there's moments where I think we all have to come into a term of saying, it may not look like chasing fame and fortune, but rather, but rather chasing him. In 2021, um, a lot of people like choose a word for the year. Anybody seen those like maybe posts on Facebook, whatever, like, what's your word for the year, right? I've wrestled with my word. I've done it before and I've wrestled with my word for this year. I'm still am, to be honest with you, and we are 17 days in. I'm doing really good, right? But here's what I know I've started in 2021. I wanted to get better. I wanted to get better. I want to get better at being faithful. And so here's what I did is, I wanted to get better at being faithful to being in God's word each and every day. 
believe it or not, I'm, I'm human too. And I suffer sometimes. I struggle sometimes to dedicate myself and time to reading and meditating. I've struggled with that. I feel like my day can get just so bogged up and chaotic that I just don't have the time. And before I know it, it's 11.30 at night and I'm, I'm going to bed and I just don't have the time. I've wanted to get better at that. So this year I started to go through the Bible. Each and every day, I'm reading a chunk. And by the end of 2021, I, I'm going to read the whole book. Front cover to back cover. I'm going to be faithful for it. And here's, here's my heart on this. <laughs> I've shared that. So now that means I'm accountable for it. I want to be better. Because I believe for me to be the best husband and father and pastor that I can be, I need to be faithful to his word. I've also chunked out part of the day to literally just sit and meditate and, and pray through scripture and just pray to him. Pray whatever it is on my heart. And there's mornings and days where like I've sat there and I've gone to him in prayer and I've literally just said the words of God, I don't know what I'm supposed to pray for today. So would you just take over? And then I just sit. Do you know how hard it has been for me to learn how to sit and be still with ADHD? But there's moments where I've just literally had to sit and constantly remind myself, just listen. Just be still. Don't think about that right now. Don't think about that email. Don't think about the classwork that's coming up. Don't think about getting Josh the slides for Sunday. Don't, don't think about it. Just be still. Be faithful to being still, Kyle. I'm trying to be faithful to his leadings and his urgings and his stirrings within me to lead well. trying to learn to discern better and be faithful to that. I'm trying to surround myself in my inner circle with people who are calling out and holding me accountable for things that I need to be held accountable for. If I've learned anything in studying about the church in Smyrna is this. Faithfulness matters. Faithfulness matters. So in these next few weeks, question for us is this, is what can you do to remain faithful to him? What can you do? How can you choose to be faithful to him rather than the good feelings of this world? Jesus affirms the, their faithfulness to this church because they chose to sacrifice They gave up things to be faithful. They sacrificed. 
willingly with hands wide open. So what about us? How have you sacrificed for him? How have I sacrificed for him? How have we all sacrificed for him? And what has it cost you? I truly believe that faithfulness at the core matters so deeply to Jesus. But there's a sacrifice. As we close today, we have we have two more worship songs that we're going to close with. And like last week, I, I want to just invite you into a, a place and a presence of God. And for some of us, that might mean we need to change our posture, physically even, to worship and encounter him. During these next songs, I invite you to just ask God, right now in these moments even, right now might be the perfect moment for you to shut your eyes and to literally say, like, God, would you invite me into your presence deeper than I've ever been before? Right now might be the moment for you to sit still, to clear your mind, clear your heart of the things you walked in with, the troubles you walked in with, the brokenness, the baggage, the frustrations, the pain, the whatever it might be. And just to say, God, invite me into your throne room. Let me see you in all your glory. It might be the moment also of asking, God, what are you asking me to sacrifice for you? During these next songs, I just, I ask. I ask as a brother in faith, as not even pastor, just brother. Would you just let God speak directly to your heart and to your soul of exactly where he needs to speak to you? Father, I ask right now, in the name of your son, Jesus, that you would pierce through, pierce through the, the walls maybe that we have up, the hurdles that we have up, the barriers that we have up, Lord. Would you just pierce through and would you just speak to us? Father, I ask that we would encounter you, that we would see you, that we would have this incredible moment and moments with you, Lord, where we can hear you, Lord. We can feel the warmth of your embrace. God, I ask right now, Lord, that you would just make yourself and your spirit known like never before. Lord, whatever posture we take right now, Lord, whether it be on our knees, whether it be standing up with our hands raised, whether it be laying face down, Whatever posture, Lord, it might be, I ask that you would encounter us today, Lord. Give us your presence, Father. We seek you and only you. We pray this in your name. Amen.